Welcome to Titanic Reaction. I'm Tony Mangus. Be aware, these are real stories. Well, most of them are. They will contain tales of alcohol, drugs, sex, extreme violence, and language Mary Whitehouse would not approve of. Take caution when listening. We're back with part two of La Benda Toten. We talked about Chaos UK, Crass, and Discharge Record cover art, how soothing it is to listen to Disorder on a Walkman, and how Defiance had the reputation of being complete pricks. Luckily, when we ran into Frank one night, we were cool to him, so we didn't have to apologize. Where are you both from? I'm an Oregonian. I lived in a couple places before I got to Portland, but I moved here when I was nine, so I just feel like this is my hometown. I'm from Santa Barbara, California. Like two hours, hour and a half north of Los Angeles. And I moved to Grants Pass in Southern Oregon when I was 17. I, uh, I went to like a weird artsy alternative school where I graduated high school two years early. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I didn't think they'd have anything that modern in Grants Pass. But no, this was in Santa Barbara. Oh, okay. I graduated when I was 16, but no, it was, I mean, it's very, it was very like California kind of hippie ideals where they took honored, honor students whose grades had dropped dramatically. That was me. I discovered heavy metal and and then like at risk students. So it was like me and a couple of like goth types and like one punk dude. And then we were like the honor students <laughs> and then like pregnant teenagers and like cholos and shit. And we were all in a school together and everybody gets to learn a little something about life. We only read books that had been banned at some point in time and had discussions about stuff. Whatever. I, I left Santa Barbara, I moved to Grants Pass when I was 17 because Santa Barbara is incredibly expensive and if you have to pay rent there, you're basically stuck there forever. So I fled and I lived out in the woods in Grants Pass for a while, but that's when I started coming to Portland and, and in Eugene. But there was nothing in Grants Pass. There was like a hippie uh, grocery store, which was like the safe zone in town. Oh, yeah. You know, like, <laughs> you go there and you knew you couldn't get fucked with. But, fuck, I remember sitting in there having some tasteless food and a skinhead with a, a, skinhead with a fucking... A vegetarian, healthy food back, yeah. like, that long ago was... Totally awful. flavorless. It was, like, it was, like, cooked by Neil from The Young Ones. Just <laughs> tasteless lentils. And, uh, <laughs> wrapped, <laughs> wrapped in a tortilla. Yeah. <laughs> but I remember sitting, this is like Grant's Pass was like, we're sitting there and some skinhead walks by outside with a huge swastika painted on the back of his, like total like bonehead, you know, swastika painted on the back of his jacket. And just like, holy shit, that guy's just walking down the street. Like, that's no problem. Welcome to Oregon, Frank. Yeah. But uh, I started coming up to Portland in that time and, when my the job I was doing, France Pass ran out, I was decided to move. I loved Portland. Like even when I was living in Santa Barbara, resist, deprived, um, like we're kind of like it's the equivalent of what Man- Minneapolis was in the nineties. Like, holy shit, this scene is fucking crazy. Right. These bands are fucking awesome and everyone looks extreme and uh you know, I I I wasn't really into the, the the music of the punk scene in Santa Barbara, and the stuff that interested me was going on in Portland. So that's where I came. And also, it, it seemed like um, 
like a big city but a small town at the same time yeah, it seemed easy yeah and it seemed fucking weird and it was cheap <laughs> there was people with discharge shirts here so i was like that's where i'm going <laughs> do you ever did you is there anything to miss about santa barbara what were the what were the bands from there did even if you it wasn't your thing were any of them good uh at the time I was living there, the scene was based around, it still is probably, but uh, there's a record label and distro called Ebullition, and the bands were like Downcast, uh, God, maybe just Downcast, <laughs> and some other bands, but it was like, it, it was, it was a very straight edge vegan scene, and like super oh, political, okay. which was great. I was all on board with all of that. It was just like the music didn't really... Because I came from, I was a metalhead for, I came from metal. So I wanted fucking misery and, (laughs) (laughs) and resist like fast thrash stuff. Yeah. It wasn't really happening. But everyone there was fucking cool. The scene itself was great. Like there was always shows. The the best of 90s hardcore came through there. So like Born Against, Econochrist, Rorschach would all nausea play, nausea played with green day i think (laughs) it it was it was great and the the people who organized stuff uh were older this guy kent who did abolition this woman sonia skindred and this guy jamie were kind of the people i saw as the ones who were booking shows and putting out zines and stuff but they were older so they had kind of gone through the 80s punk and we're sort of done with it but that was a great source of information for me like like oh yeah okay you like that check out this so kent the guy who ran abolition knew what to sell me on so like misery they were the first resist lps like you check this out you're gonna love it you know yeah i don't really miss anything about it it was great to grow up as a kid because you could just be out all night skateboarding around it's like getting into trouble it's like fucking paradise. Like it's, it's never hot. It's never cold. <laughs> You're like. I was say you have to talk about it because I. I mean, I lived there. I think from like five until nine when I came back to Portland, and it's just like a tropical paradise. There's just like fruit hanging from the trees all the time. Do the avocados rolling down the street. Lemons. Is it never hot? It's never super hot. No, because it's the southern coast, so you get you get the breeze from the ocean, and then there's the mountains. Yeah. And it's, it's so beautiful. It's ridiculous. Yeah. It's like it's kind of what, what people think of as like a California paradise is what Santa Maria yeah. actually is. And that's why it's it, so expensive because the hills are filled with really, really, really rich people. So like the only old, thing old you, money. Yeah, yeah. And so like the only thing you can do is work in the service industry, essentially. It's so insanely expensive, but it like I didn't need money when I was fucking 15 years old. I just needed a skateboard and a Walkman. (laughs) And I would just not eat lunch and save up whatever money I could and and take a trip to the record store once a week. And that was it. But but, but Santa Barbara had a huge scene in the 80s. There was a place called uh, Casa de la Raza and hundreds of flyers from that fight. Like everyone played there. There's like super uh, discharge suicidal tendencies, the butthole surfers and code of honor, the one show, you know. that was one show. Yeah, but it's fucking uh, broken bones. Everybody played. Seems there. like that would have just turned into a war. Can't say no, right? Like too much in one place just fucking exploded. <laughs> I mean, it would really explode. Uh, there was like so. There was a huge scene there. There's even a Misfits bootleg like VHS floating around of a show in Santa Barbara. 
that I would just watch just to see like what people had painted on their jackets, you know? Yeah. Uh, Exploited played in Santa Barbara, like all the bands, like Channel 3, so obviously all the LA bands came and played. But there was never really any bands from Santa Barbara. The closest okay. was, well, RKL was from Montecito, which is like the rich suburb. So they really were rich kids. Uh, and then like all the Oxnard, the Nardcore bands, because uh, it's the same area code of 805. So that's kind of what the Santa Barbara scene was. So there weren't, but there was punk graffiti fucking everywhere when I was still a kid, like, I remember there was an abrasive wheel stencil and I always wondered if had they played and you just find it like on buildings all faded or like maybe Ivy growing over it. And there was a broken bone stencil too, that somebody had put around like all faded, maybe a little moss growing over it. And when when I was, when I was really young, I would go to this arcade. It was like elementary school. And there was like, fact, like this arcade was like Tron, you know, like an entire city block. And fucking punks everywhere it's just where all the nair do wells hung out at the arcade and across the street in one of the pole, like a wooden pole somebody had just carved circle jerks and to me at like 13 14 that was the coolest fucking thing like just to go by there and see it <laughs> so how'd you get into punk from the arcade no uh so i was i was like straight into metal like uh i think i was 11 and i was already reading like horror novels and stuff and uh my cousin played me uh, iron maiden number of the beast and somehow that just like fucking clicked like it made complete sense and i was all in after that the first i went and bought they didn't have number of the beast so i bought killers and it was just like i thought it was crazy (laughs) <laughs> you know and metal 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 that was, that was all i wanted and metal and horror movies just non-stop and there it was weird amongst my friends like this was when punk and metal was not cool so it did not mix yeah it did not mix yeah there was crossover bands but like punks did not go to metal shows and we had no interest in punk shows uh but for some reason there were certain bands you could like like the exploited and Black Flag, and uh, we're like, okay. <laughs> I ran like the Ramones for some reason. <laughs> like, um, actually, so that the place, Casa de la Raza, that's the only show I saw there was the Ramones and RKL. And I was 13 and I snuck in. It was an 18 and over show, so I'm not sure how that worked, but I was tall. So I was able to, it is <laughs> 1989, so nobody cared. <laughs> right. It was the Brain Drain tour, so it was especially exciting because Pet Cemetery had just came out, and they had the song Pet Cemetery. Oh, right. Um, whatever. Anyways, yeah, and, and you know, like 1990, metal started getting kind of everybody put out like a not so great record, and definitely oh, yeah, they were even they were even over crossover by then. Like they were done with their punk phase. Yeah. But like all my favorite bands put out a kind of lackluster record and death metal wasn't super accessible. So it wasn't like I could latch on to like the new metal thing. And so I just kind of started getting uninterested, but there was all this old punk that I hadn't heard and kind of got more, more and more into that. And actually like the thanks list on a fucking car, the first carcass record 
You're like, oh, yeah. Like they're thinking like Chaos UK and Crass and Extreme Noise Terror. So I'm like, who, yeah. who are these bands? Yes. Yeah, and exactly. actually, one of the. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, they thank Chaos UK. And I found the UK DK video in a record store and it had Chaos UK on it. And <laughs> I was like, well, I'm going to get this. And I watched it. And I remember, like, you know, it, all the bands are fine, they have their moments. I love them all now, but at the time I was kind of like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Until it gets to the Veruker's Chaos UK Disorder part. And that's when I was like, oh, holy shit. Yeah. And the, like, Disorder in their squat with the fucking hair, drinking oh rock cider. And I remember they were listening to Motorhead. And I was just like, yeah, I like Motorhead too. Like, that's pretty fucking cool. And then, like, at the time, the Disorder song didn't really grab me, but the Chaos UK part that fucking no security like still one of the greatest songs ever and just that that footage yeah, yeah. i was i was fucking sold I, I was all in on chaos uk at that point there's like it's very frequent like when we're working on songs like as a prompt to keith we'll be like no security no security so the two drum beats you need yeah exactly <laughs> to play noise core mm-hmm. and then i found the chaos uk extreme noise terror split and oh, was, yeah. like, my fucking mind was shattered because <laughs> even though i like i'd heard carcass and that was sloppy and napalm death and stuff for some reason the extreme noise terror just i mean it seemed extreme it's yeah like more chaotic you know there was like no metal element to it nothing professional it yeah was all gnarly Anyways. and there was all I never, it blew my mind as much as the first time i heard discharge yeah the, the first time I heard Discharge, I don't know if I'm getting too off topic here, but uh, so like Metallica wore Discharge shirts, yeah, wore Discharge shirts. Uh, I'd see punks around town wearing when I was still like young, just into metal. I'd see punks wearing Discharge shirts. Like, whoa, it is this, this band is obviously the band to find out about. And I found Grave New World used on cassette. <laughs> you know, when you don't have a lot of money. And yeah. I can buy two new records and like one used, maybe another used thing if I, and it was like two bucks or something. So I bought that. I didn't listen to it on the bus home because I probably got like a nuclear assault cassette or something that I was more stoked on. <laughs> but when I got home, I put it on and I was like so fucking confused. <laughs> this is the band? I, I don't even think I didn't like it. I was just like, wait, huh? Now, this doesn't sound like something that Metallica would listen to, you know? Yeah. And uh, actually, my a couple years later, when I was, like, going to punk shows and stuff, uh, this guy, Jamie Billig, was like, what was it? A Final Conflict record. I think it was Final Conflict LP. He's like, buy this. It sounds just like Discharge. And I was like, ah, I'm not really into Discharge. And he's... <laughs> <laughs> I told him about the Grave New World tape. No, 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 no. And the next day, he gave me a cassette that was like uh, Never Again and State Violence, State Control, and, oh, and the yeah. first Lloyd Polloy and first Conflict LP and Dead Silence from Colorado. And I was, fuck, I got it. Yeah, fuck <laughs> yeah. Just hearing Never Again, I was like, oh shit, <laughs> this is this is the serious stuff. First Lloyd Polloy, the Unite and Win, or that split with Bob? Oh, no, no, the, um, sorry, the um, Resist the Atomic Menace. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, so I think there's still a little bit of oi element there, but it's real, yeah. like, anarcho-sounding. Yeah. And angry. 
Very. How'd you get find punk? Um, I was attending my own weird alternative school that I graduated two years early from, MLC. And so I was in middle school. Um, and like my life up to that point, like I had been exposed like my whole life to all of the like major, you know, early punk and goth bands and the intense new wave stuff of the 80s when I was growing up. And I was obsessed with music, so I was constantly, like, scouring MTV, you know, like, that kind of thing. But my impression and what I was always told as a kid was, like, okay, it's really just the Ramones and Sex Pistols and punk is dead. And, you know, I was like, oh, that's too bad. They seemed really cool, you know. <laughs> like, uh, I kind of wanted to do that, but okay, you know. And then uh, when I was in school, at that point, I was completely just obsessed with Bauhaus and Joy Division and, um, you know, totally like all black, like black lipstick, black smudgy, black eyeliner, kind of, you know, looking, looking young goth kid. And I was in school and this lady came in to do mentoring, uh, who was 18 at the time. And she had just graduated from there. It turned out to be Sarah Huff. And, uh, she saw me and was like, this kid's weird. I should ask her if she likes these bands, you know, she just came up and started talking to me about music and, um, zines and all this kind of stuff and it just really blew my mind because I was like oh my god I had no idea this was still happening you know um she also took me to my first show which I actually cannot remember the name of the band um but it was in a basement which was cool and what yeah. could it have been because there weren't that many bands at the time like was it Defiance no 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 not at all it was like a it was like a touring band from the Bay Area uh who were really not very good hmm. Um, in my opinion, so I didn't care to learn more. Um, but yeah, and so like, you know, that, that really set things off for me and it just like, it blew my mind and it gave me access to, you know, like this DIY kind of ethic or, um, what have you with punk or it's like, you can, you can make anything you want. You can do anything you want. You don't have to be trained to do, you know, I thought all of these like creative things that I've always wanted to do, I had to like you know, get professional training or buy really fancy equipment, you know, that kind of thing. And so it just seemed like just not an option to me. And I just really needed to feel like I had options. So it just really saved me right in time, I think, like giving me a chance to kind of like, you know, write and meet to people all around the world who like, you know, at the time it was just pen pals through the mail, but that was astonishingly cool. Like, you know, like just so amazing to me that I could connect with all these different kinds of people and that we had this like shared interest and yeah, like I remember, um, there was one point when I, when I discovered Chaos UK and disorder, I, it just, it blew my fucking mind. Like I just couldn't, couldn't handle it, you know? And it was like, I know like they were supposed to be sort of rudimentary or something, or people thought they were stupid or I don't know what, but it, to me, it just completely blew my fucking mind. And I remember Sarah had actually made me a cassette that was a disorder chaos UK cassette. And I ended up, um, at this, like, at this like runaway shelter, like a shelter for runaways. Um, and I had that cassette in my Walkman and I had those like old style, like foam earphone, well, you know, that yeah. don't, you can't hear a fucking thing anyway, but yeah. then also if you put disorder in chaos UK and play them through, you know, it's like, it was just like, you know kind of like just really chaotic but like 
I would just sit and like listen to it constantly, like feverishly over and over again. It just brought me so much comfort. Even though I couldn't hear the songs that I loved, I was still just like, oh my God, this chaos feels so right. You know, like I don't know why. And then at some point I decided I wanted to learn how to play guitar. So I started a band <laughs> to learn how to play guitar. <laughs> but yeah, that was, that was how I ended up getting started. And, um, developing some of my musical obsessions with underground punk. And after so long, what's kept you guys involved in it? I don't know what else to do. This is again, like I've just never thought to not. Yeah. There's never been a point where I like, I mean, I have lots of other interests as well, but I'm punk. Like, I, like yeah. this is how it goes. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, maybe it's been a detriment at times, but also like totally not, you know? Yeah. Uh, like I never had to do, make anything art, make art at all until like I had to learn how to make flyers and record covers and learn how to rip off kinkos and shit it, it forced me to do a lot of stuff i maybe wouldn't have done otherwise you know or wouldn't have had an outlet to do or wouldn't have even been inspired to do who knows yeah i mean it, it like that's for me that's like such a huge part of it i guess that continues because i mean it's i don't know being able to being in a position where it's like you have to be you have to come up with something like you want to make something you have to come up with it and then you like work together or you know on your own yeah, just I, I don't know. There's uh, nothing that makes me necessarily want to leave. <laughs> yeah, I I always want to listen to a Blitz record. You know, <laughs> I, I might not fucking put on Discharge every day, but there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about Discharge, <laughs> or, or probably talk about Discharge. <laughs> Part of the reason that I was really excited by it was that there was this really intense radical politics element. And I just never experienced anything like that before. And, you know, like thinking about the Ramones or the Sex Pistols, you know, you don't necessarily think about them as like pushing for change or, you know, <laughs> but it was cool that like, it really brought my attention to a lot of things that I might not have noticed as quickly anyhow. And like being exposed to vegetarianism was a really big deal. Like I've been a vegetarian now for 27 years or whatever. Um, and that I don't know if I would have gone down that path or even known it was an option if I hadn't been hanging around with punks, you know. That, that's definitely true. And yeah. it, it was it was conflict that yeah. <laughs> made me go vegetarian. That song Meets Murder, which was on the cassette that my friend gave me, uh, I didn't even think about it too much. I was just like, yeah, okay. <laughs> that's what I'm doing now. Yeah. There's something I wanted to add about Portland. Uh, the one of the first times that I hung out in Portland, I was living with this this dude in Grants Pass who was like this like traditional skinhead guy, and he came up to Portland to see like Eka Mouse or something, some like reggae uh -huh. show with the Roseland, and I just kind of came along. I was just like, I'll just fucking wander around. I have no idea how this happened, but I ended up hanging out with you and Mike and Alaric. Like, oh really? I, I've been thinking about this. Uh, the last week, like, how the fuck did I even run into those guys? And then how did my friend find me later? Because there was no cell phones. But no. Yeah, like, I I feel like I ran into Mike. And, you know, I'm going to be honest, 
you guys were kind of known as dicks at the time, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but, but you weren't a, a dick to me at all. And I also didn't understand that there is like, what year was that? 93, I think. And in Portland, there was like the crust and the punk. And you yeah. know, there was this kind of weird line, you know, even though you were all kind of friends, like you guys definitely did not like crusties. <laughs> you know? And I was like full on just fucking rotting pants. Like, <laughs> filthy, greasy doom shirt and like vest with only discharge, you know, like crust. I saw Defiance play. I think it was called Stump Fest, but it's different than whatever Stump Fest is now in Corvallis. And it was an outdoor show, and you were still in Defiance at the time. And it was like right when the oh, first, yeah. first seven inch came out, and it was like fucking awesome. Mass Control was supposed to play and didn't for some reason. But we ended up back at that the house. I don't know if you lived there, Mike's house on Ash. No, I didn't live there. Oh, okay. I just remember that the. the there was this huge semicircle of broken glass and cigarette butts around <laughs> around the doorway to the house, like out into the street. Anyway, that was kind of my first experience of hanging out in in Portland by myself when I was still living in Southern Oregon. The day after that show was like my 24th birthday or something, and uh, I woke up and went to the store and got a bottle of Cisco for breakfast <laughs> for my birthday. <laughs> Oh, that just like makes my hands feel sticky. <laughs> it's giving me like a fake hangover. <laughs> this is about Santa Barbara, actually, but there were there were at the time. So there was Downcast, and there was the, the more kind of like hardcore um, punk bands, but there was also this band called Agent Ninety Four, who were like the other scene. Like they all were fucking mohawks, drinking discharge shirts. They oh yeah, like, they sounded like Final Conflict. They were like, and they were fucking rad. Like that was a band that it was, they, and they never. Eventually, they they kind of merged into the scene. Like everyone had to deal with each other for so long that it was like, yeah, okay, whatever, you know. <laughs> and they started playing like the the uh, I don't know the other scene kind of shows. But Agent 94 was fucking awesome. And there was this band called Reality Control, obviously a different one than the British one. And they were also like a punk band. <laughs> you know, they were. Did right. either of them put out records? Yeah. Uh, Agent 94 put out two, three, three seven inches, maybe just two and an LP. And, uh, Reality Control was on a, like a couple compilations. And there was another band called PMS, which was a all-female all band who were kind of goofy, but they were also like punks. Like they were, they were older you know, than me, so they were like party crowd. They turned into a band called, they moved to San Francisco and became Cockpit. And I think we're kind of more popular after that. But the one of the, the the bass player for PMS, Katie O'Dell, had a heavy metal show that I had listened to when I was younger. It was like my friends and I would all listen to it, it was on the college station. It was called the Meltdown, and <laughs> she had this great intro. It was like uh, that New York band Leeway, that real crossover kind of thing. Yeah. 
And then just her like voice echoing, hey, metalheads, come out of the closet, which at the time I didn't get, but now I think it's very funny. Uh, and we we were kind of like harassing her. We would call, it's like trying to figure out stuff she didn't have to play, but we were always like writing down everything she played that we didn't know. So you mean you were trying to one-up her while simultaneously taking down notes? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything she played. Yeah. But she worked at a record store, so we'd still have to see, we'd see her at the record store with our lists of like, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. we, we call, all the bands that were just on your show. Yeah, so we'd call her and be like, "Oh, Katie, play the fucking new Death record." And she's like, "What? That just came out. I don't have it." We're like, "Oh, you don't have it? Yeah, oh, what the fuck? Not that any of us had it, but." <laughs> and then we yeah we go in the next day and. Like, oh, do you have Dark Angel leave scars? Yeah, you know, whatever. <laughs> uh, there was also there was another lady who had a punk show on that was after hers, and that was another thing I would write down all the bands. That's like where I first heard X-ray specs, and then would go in the next day to the record store she worked at. And, oh, do you have any X-ray specs records? Now you're never gonna find that stuff. But this is like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there were actually bands there, and there was like, there's oddly a huge. Well, there was a number of goth bands, but they all kind of had the same members. Oh, okay. That was pretty cool. And for some reason, a lot of them live in Portland now. <laughs> well, hey, speaking of scenes crossing over and stuff, well, when do you think that happened in Portland? Like, late 90s? It's all kind of a blur, but how, how did we start hanging out with, like, the people we used to call bar rock? I, I, I mean, I think it was kind of through East End because you had to book them. Oh, yeah, but it had to be way before then because they were even playing a Chinese tea house. Oh, I mean, I guess that's it because where else were they going to play? Yeah, you know, I mean, there was never... I'm trying to think of the bands. Like the Weaklings and... Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, it was the first thing that I thought of too, but also because we just talked about that show. Yeah, the the, the the show at the Ming Lounge was booked by one of the guys from the Weaklings. Uh, yeah, I guess it was just kind of just how it went. Maybe everyone kind of calmed down a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Got sick of all of like all fifteen of us hanging yeah. out together. <laughs> or like Chanel was saying, like you had to see them everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> got tired of fucking being in the Kinkos for two hours, like glaring at somebody 20 feet away from you for no reason. You learn to cope. You learn to cope. Yeah. Oh, you know, it's, it's, it's as stupid as like, oh, yeah, that guy wears a black flag shirt that's real underground, you know, or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if Poison Idea had been playing more often, we all would have been at that sh those shows. So, yeah. And now I just think it's every, you know, this sounds lame, but like all the people who are older are kind of like, ah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you just kind of give up after a while. <laughs> or realize that it, it wasn't really worth it. Like there was, yeah, there was not really a point to being that elitist because somebody wasn't as political as you you know or yeah whatever one of my major failings as a booker was overlooking and like not really understanding the connection and importance of art and punk and artists have always been associated and involved how has art influenced your life i 
don't know how to answer it exactly because it's just like it's more like something that I've always been seeking out because it just keeps me alive you know it's it's just that kind of thing like same with music where I just have always really gravitated towards those things um I and like I was saying earlier like part of the way that punk saved my life was to give me access to like tools and people who were making things and like getting a chance to do that so to me those things were always like really entwined what inspired you to start making art um I really loved it and from what I could gather from the adults around me I was not too bad at it <laughs> so it was just a really great combination of just like self-fulfilling happiness feedback loop but you know like that stuff changes as you grow older and become more neurotic and <laughs> don't like to allow joy into your life for some reason you know <laughs> but I mean th those things for me like I don't even know how to describe you know kind of like when it started to speak to me it was just the way I've always looked at things like being totally overwhelmed by color and um, by music and singing like vocalists in particular um that's weirdly kind of a visual thing for me to experience and that's something that I love to do how has making art helped you um it allows me to think about really complex things um in a way that is it's the most it's the easiest way for me to manage um thinking about really complex ideas or feelings um you know just being able to kind of open up and let things out you start to then you can give yourself that feedback of like oh here's what I keep making why am I making this you know and just kind of working in that way so it's definitely like a therapeutic element for me for sure um, and also just like, I have way too many ideas and thoughts all the time. So it's nice to be able to just kind of squish them all together in like an object or, you know, whatever, and not have to kind of like take the five years it would take to write it all out on paper or something, <laughs> you know, like you can kind of, it's just, it helps me think and process information. And I guess as a form of expression too. One of the things with the with the record covers, I, I and a lot of the Benetton artwork, I do most of it. Chanel does some individual, like, um, I don't know if we really collaborate on things. Chanel does the stuff that she does, and I do the stuff I do. But I always know, like, what, because we've been working together for so long artistically, I know what works and, like, how to translate her lyrics into art and the things that she would want on the record covers, you know, it, it's never, it's a very, it's a collaborative effort, even if it physically isn't a collaborative effort. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I definitely don't contribute as much visually to, to the band stuff, but it's true. Like literally everything we agree on, like there's, we both have veto power, you know, kind <laughs> of about it this way, but it's true. Like, so if we don't really fully agree with what the other person's trying to do, we'll try to rework it or change it. You know what I mean? It's never like, yeah. it's never really a solo mission in that respect. But with Atrocious Madness, I did everything, but it was all very, you know, 
sound of distant aircraft get louder and louder. Like it was all just fucking stark apocalypse. Like you yeah, helped out at Kinko's. I was there. Well, you know, <laughs> Chanel definitely spent <laughs> did her time at Kinko's, but it was it was a totally different aesthetic. Like, and, yeah. I, and I wanted the better to be more because I wasn't writing the lyrics anymore. Chanel was, so I, it needed to change. And I also just didn't want to keep doing, you know, gloom and crass ripoff. Yeah. I kind of got to a point where there's more that can be said and more that, that can tie in a record, especially one that has more ideas than like very tense political statements. I grew up in a movie theater, so I was just watching movies constantly. So a lot, and I was reading, you know, the, the authors that I enjoyed when I was younger, the, it was all creating a world, you know, like a, like a whole other atmosphere that you existed in. I remember the first time I saw Blade Runner, just like shattering my reality. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like nothing had looked like that. I was totally like, fuck. Uh, so the, the art for Levin and Toten tries to kind of create not necessarily another world, but it's much more atmosphere based than just a being shocking, you know, to try and prove it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's kind of what I was, you know, I was talking more about myself personally earlier, but I think that that's just also part of like everything that I do or I like that I make. Um, which is just like bringing together a lot of disparate elements and forming cohesion, even if it doesn't seem like they should go together, you can kind of place things, you know, so that it becomes like a cohesive uh, force. And that's kind of, I feel like what you're just talking about too. One of the things that Chanel does in her personal artwork that I think is really cool is that it, it focuses on very small elements to things that, that uh, not humanizes, but, uh, kind of gives them their own life, right? So it's rather than a, a giant picture of something, very narrow images that I think is great. And with the, the band artwork, I try and incorporate stuff that's sort of like, if you follow that road, you'll find out more and it'll create a bigger picture. Of yeah. So there's yeah. lots of things hidden in, uh, hidden in the artwork that reference other things mm -hmm. that create a larger picture and a bigger understanding of what the art is and what the lyrics are. And then the music's just there to be annoying, but it's <laughs> <laughs> going back to earlier when we were talking about crass and those record covers, like G voucher, like when I kind of learned more about her and then I found out that those were paintings and not collages, you know, that she was making. Yeah. It, fucking blew me away i was like what is happening you know like what is she using? i don't i don't have access to whatever this thing she's smearing on the paper is like what the fuck is that and so i found, i read about it and like figured it out and now like it's she used gouache it's called it's just opaque watercolor but that's what i almost exclusively paint with like is gouache and ink now which i don't know if i would have taken to it as early or as quickly if i hadn't had the idea you know, in my head by seeing like what someone else could do with this stuff. I don't do anything that looks even remotely like the things that she does, but just that her work was so sort of solitary and strange and it really stood out in that way, you know. Same with like Nick Blanco in that way, where it's like, yeah, just really strange and very solitary and unique. So that Chanel and I talk about with the artwork is, is the intent. Everything is very intentional. There's not kind of, uh, 
oh, let's just, let's just do this and that'll be fine. You know, it, everything has a purpose. Mm-hmm. And even if it's just a, a picture of a jacket or, you know, it's the, the placement, everything about it is very intentional. Nothing is just kind of slapped together. And I think that that's what, what you get from, from crass and discharge is that this was exactly what they were trying to do and like exactly the message that they wanted. Yeah, there's a but then you also end up with, with the brilliance of the Chaos UK Blue album cover. <laughs> that is one of the greatest record covers of all time. I can't believe I didn't think about that earlier. A complete accident. Or not. Nobody knows. But it's like, <laughs> fuck. That makes it even better. With your stuff, like the st- the cover for Static, it's just as intense as a discharge cover or a crass one, but there's no burned bodies. It's not overtly political, but it's just as intense. That that was actually the, the easiest I like record <laughs> cover I've ever done. Like I was, you know, trying to figure out what to do for it. And I was sitting there looking at the poltergeist soundtrack. And I was like, I wish I could just put this fucking image on the cover. And I was like, ah, I can. Yeah. I remember <laughs> so, you called me and you were like, okay. <laughs> like this, we're gonna take the skeleton hat. Put it. It's gonna be channel twenty-three. We're gonna change it. And just like come to him and put it together. The, the the TV on the cover of Static is the TV from the Poltergeist poster, and I just cut out the screen. Yeah. Her hands aren't there, and put in another image of Static with our skeleton hand, which is actually Chanel's hand, the skeleton hand over it, uh, <laughs> and in like deep nerdery. The, the TV on the Poltergeist poster is turned to Channel 42. In the movie, it's not. And also, in that time of the 80s, there was no Channel 42. There was no I Channel know, 42. I've... But 40, that 42 on the Poltergeist image is a reference to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, right? So I wasn't going to do that. So I instead I put 23 there, which if people know, they know. But it, the basic... <laughs> It was also in Max Headroom. <laughs> it was actually weirdly... Oh, and, and it was in Max Headroom? That's even extra bad. And that's kind of... But that also works with the record. And, like, even though that's not something anyone's ever going to know or notice, probably, like, outside of thinking maybe it's conspiracy-related, um, <laughs> instead of knowing that it's Max Headroom, like, it being from Max Headroom, like, really fits with that whole record and the reason I wrote those lyrics, you know, all that kind of stuff, like... Just the the kind of chaotic, like, in and out, you know, like, just polar extremes and, yeah. So it's kind of funny. I never thought about that, how, like, those things are actually really connected. The, in the Max Hedrum TV show, Network 23 is the TV station in the future that uh, the, the, the person whose mind became Max Hedrum works for, and he's this investigative reporter uncovering future corruption and like future things like body banks and dream thieves and like (laughs) people who make televisions that you can turn off Mm -hmm. anyways that's network 23 in the uh, next the static cover (laughs) and you guys have been playing music together and been punks for so long chanel how how have you been treated different than frank um you mean because i'm a woman yeah yeah, I mean, I think I was thinking about this and like, it's kind of easier to see in retrospect, 
you know, like than it was for me to see in the moment, because I feel like when I started coming to shows, there was starting to be this like kind of upsurge of women in bands, you know, like it was just becoming more common. It was still much more rare than now, but you know, it was like a part of that time where to me, it didn't seem like it should be a fucking thing. So in a lot of ways, I think I kind of blocked stuff out that I didn't want to notice. Um, that in retrospect is annoying and <laughs> um but like i used to get really frustrated when people would be like what's it like to be a woman in punk i'd be like i don't fucking know what's it like to be a dude in punk like i don't know i'm just here you know like it would kind of really frustrate me because i felt like my gender was being focused on in an annoying way because that's one of the things that happens is like you show up somewhere and no one thinks that you are in the band they think you're a girlfriend or they just ignore you completely. It's mostly like the not being heard that was really stuck out for me a lot playing music. Do you think that Portland was different than other places at that time? I think so. It was my impression, yes, because there was a lot of crossover too between like um, the the lesbian community in particular and the punk scene at that time. And, you know, that was something that I was around quite a bit. And I think that there was just a lot of I think that there were a lot of really radical women around at that time and kind of in the scene before they split away into their own enclave, you know, like instead of just being all part of the same weird creative scene that we were in. Something I think like what you're saying about that time is there were, there were way more like outside influences in the punk scene, even though we felt like we were kind of insular and maybe a little elitist, there was still like there weren't enough punks here to be that, elitist so you right. get people from different scenes different music scenes different art scenes that kind of would creep in or exist on the periphery whereas now and i blame the internet like i blame it for everything there's, it's just like punk is just a chunk <laughs> just drop somewhere and that's that's it that's what that's all that's there yeah, that's good and bad doesn't matter but it, you don't get these outside but i think it's for everything and it's because of the internet that communities and scenes can just exist by themselves they don't need any outside influence or they or they don't think they need any outside influence are you answering a question about my experience as a woman no i'm not at all (laughs) i'm just joking I'm, i'm talking i'm talking about uh the the lesbian community's influence on 90s portland punk and how we don't get that kind of thing anymore of outside sources which would be really important i think to make people think and grow uh you know to yeah but i think for me the, the main thing is just that you don't you feel like you're never taken seriously you feel invisible um, you know, like it's not true a thousand percent of the time, but it's always an element or it was, especially then. Uh, but then now it's like, it's changed so much. I can see in retrospect that there was all kinds of toxic shit that was happening that I was just kind of tuning out that I realize now is not as much of an issue. So it's easier for me to kind of like, to, to be like, wow, this is great. This is a positive change, you know? I mean, I'm astonished all the time. It's just not even a thing for women to be in bands, right? I mean, it's like, it's just not even a thing anymore. Like, it's great, you know? Like, it's not notable, I guess, is my point, necessarily. You know, because there are so many women who are in bands now, whereas before it was just, like, this big fucking deal, you know? And, like, if there was a woman in the band, you know? But even then, it's really funny, like, um, 
I remember Atrocious Madness being referred to as a dude band several times, uh, which I thought was really fucking funny, but also just like... Yeah, since it was half women. (laughs) Well, no, it was just me. Uh, Well, I guess at that point, Sarah was no longer in the band, but yeah, it was founded by two women. I was right there. I just was invisible for some fucking reason. (laughs) (laughs) But I never had this feeling that like, I shouldn't belong like that. was. I think that was it, you know, like tuning it out where I was just like, fuck this. Like people are going to treat me like shit. I'm going to ignore it and do what I want to do anyway. And I really struggled with shyness for a long time. So that was a little hard, but eventually I got over that. Any advice for women or girls getting into punk or wanting to be in a band? You know, I, I would just say like, I don't know if I'm qualified to give advice, but I, I would just say like, you know, be confident in what you want to do and be find people who you like to collaborate with um, and stick to it and just keep, keep doing whatever it is that you really want to be doing. You don't need to get swept up in things that are already happening necessarily. I mean, I guess I would just say that because I think it's more interesting when folks are, you know, kind of coming to it from an individual place and making unique things. Yeah. What kind of shit are they going to have to put up with? I mean, you know, every female on the planet is very familiar with just how sexism is present in their lives. Um, And I don't really feel like I can speak to, like, the current generation situation. I can only kind of look at Uh, it. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so it's like from the outside to me, it looks great because there are just so many women everywhere who are, like, doing things, um, you know, doing their own stuff. But I, as far as I know, like, socially, there could be a lot going on that I'm not aware of, you know. Well, what are the most glaring aspects of sexism in punk? I mean, I really think it's just kind of like we're soaking in it. You know what I mean? It's like with racism, it's like it's a part of the world and the the way that we live our lives. So it's like I don't feel like there's really a way to get away from it completely. Um, but again, like it, it's kind of just like I was saying before, like I feel like it's a totally different world now. I mean, you know, but I say that, but then I'm laughing to myself thinking about that show that we played with Limprist. What was the name of that venue? Bossa Nova? Yeah. Sound guy was <laughs> not very good and also <laughs> really, really rude and condescending to all of the female members of all of the bands. And oh. like uh, Petite played and um, Laura was the vocalist for Petite at the time. And she went up and was just like, you know, doing her mic check. Someone else had just been up there. It was totally fine. She was checking her thing. It sounded totally fine. And he, she asked if she could get some reverb on the mic. And he just like started this fucking 20 minute long lecture about how she didn't know what she was doing with the microphone, just like really belittling and insane. And it's just like, Oh wow. I haven't seen this in a long time. (laughs) This is bad, you know, and just talking with her and them after that, you know, she was just kind of saying like, I can't believe it. I haven't seen this in so long. This reminds yeah. me of old days. Like I'm saying, like it reminds me of the things that I had to deal with before constantly. And now it's like luckily an infrequent experience. I mean that I remember that that whole incident, that whole night, and everyone's reaction was kind of like like everyone kind of laughed at it, like, what the fuck? Like this yeah. is like, so antiquated. <laughs> yeah. Very old fashioned. Yeah. Work for her. You know, she was like up there on the fucking stage trying to get ready and he's like lecturing her about what reverb is. You know, like yeah. what you know, it's like that's exhausting. I don't wanna fucking do that. You don't wanna get in a fight with your sound guy either, because then 
they might just turn all your gear off, which we've had happen to us before. <laughs> <laughs> we're not, for a different like, reason, though. Yeah, we're not a favorite among sound engineers. Today, so. <laughs> We, we we played this is completely off topic but we played we were supposed to play with the wankies in london you were there <laughs> yeah when we we're doing the sound check the sound guy was like oh fuck <laughs> oh fuck that show was good though that was great right around the corner from the power in the building went off <laughs> oh yeah the power went out right yeah, yeah. What are some of the more subtle things me and other men do that we might not even realize we're being sexist? I think that really it's just about, you know, like most people aren't running around trying to abuse everybody, you know, it's just more about the subconscious stuff, like the way you behave towards. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think for, for this particular question, I just, I really think like if you're a man and you notice that you behave very differently when you're just with women and very differently when you're just with men, you might want to think about that. You might want to think about why, because then that to you means that they're different, very different types of people. Just questioning your own like views and behavior. And maybe it's just because of some antiquated thing where you're like, I have to be really polite around women, but it can still, the only reason that I think it's a good idea to ask yourself those questions is just because uh, women pick up on that. You know, it, it like it kind of feeds into some of the fears that we might be told to expect, you know, men not really being themselves when they're with you, but, but you know, that just that kind of thing. And it also feels like an element of dismissiveness or just like that you can't trust that person when you see them behaving in two radically different ways. And then the other thing, if you have a lot of women in your life who just seem hysterical and emotional and upset all the time, are you listening to what they're saying? Because I think they're upset because you're not listening to what they're saying. <laughs> That's like really just those are the two things. Um, ask yourself about your own behavior, you know, and then also ask yourself what the feedback you're getting from the women in your life is, you know, and really interrogate that, not just like, oh, women are all bitches or, you know, whatever kind of thing. If you could magically change something for women in punk, what would it be? Yeah, I think it would be that everyone felt equally heard and seen. And everyone felt that they were being treated in accordance with their humanity and not just based on their gender. I think that would be great. I, I don't know if that's ever going to really be possible <laughs> just because of the yeah. way that like we are as human beings and how we always feel separate and neurotic depending on the situation. But yeah, that would be great. I, that was, that was the thing that was really damaging to me. I think when I was younger, it was just like, not being seen, not being heard, not getting credit for anything ever, you know, even like, even when I was younger, it was like, you know, everyone kind of has a person who like shows the music or, you know, makes some tapes or, or whatever. Um, but I just remember being relentlessly interrogated about who I had heard about a band from, you know, like, where, where did I get this? Where did I get this opinion about Amoebics? You know, that kind of was like, the person who introduced it to me, therefore, was somehow superior to me as a human being and therefore more reliable. And then that person's opinion, if it matched my own, it was just me copying that person. You know, like that kind of thing where it's like you just don't, you're not really there. But that whole thing is so typical. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, do you remember that shit? Like, who the fuck yeah. cares? Who cares? 
if you found out about something that you really like, you should be allowed to really like it. I wonder if that if that still exists in that capacity. I know. I wonder too, because of the yeah. the way people access music now, it's not like possessed only by the record collector. Yeah. Cause at that time it was like, oh, you've heard this band. Oh, you must have looked at Frank's records or oh, you must have looked at Kelly's record. You know, like it's just like yeah. only collectors had really specific and you can't have your own opinions. It's all based on whatever guy you're hanging out with at the time, what their taste is. Yes. Yeah, it's exhausting. Japan stories? Oh, yeah, Japan. So we first went to Japan with Atrocious Madness in oh, 2001. God. And, uh, I mean, it was, it's incredible. <laughs> Fuck. Like, you get to tour Japan. It made no sense. Like, yeah. So I've never been. And at the time, there was so much happening. I mean, I, there still is, but at the time, there was so much fucking happening in, with Japanese punk. Like, the bands were just non-stop awesome you know there's crust war the label and the zine was going overthrow was putting out stuff constantly and the it was just awesome <laughs> so like getting to play with all really those bands there was still a really intense scene division there between like the that was really interesting. Hardcore bands and the political bands. Maybe we shouldn't talk about that. Delete, delete, delete. That's actually something about the Japanese punk scene is there's uh, a lot of stuff you shouldn't talk about. There's there's a I shouldn't oh, even be talking that. about, don't that. Even right. talk about that. <laughs> don't even talk about what no, you can't talk I'm about. Terminal. Find Tony's computer and uh yeah, it was fucking stupid tour stories. The the first show we played in Japan was in Osaka, like the fucking place that we wanted to play the most. Like the show that we were like so fucking stoked on is Us and Disclose and uh, Argue Damnation and Def this band Defuse. Fuck, they were so good. Who, I think they had one seven inch out or split seven inch maybe at the time. They, I think they had a full seven inch. I mean, they're called fucking defuse. Their logo was like a confused logo. Like we couldn't. And they were so cool. Every time I've run into those ladies, it's like I'm just astonished by how cool they are. <laughs> just really cool. And I, we were getting to meet a lot of people that we've been writing to for years and and interviewing or putting out records for whatever. So we had never played on a stage that was more than like six inches high. We had what never done a fucking sound, sound check. <laughs> yeah and so in japanese clubs are all because tony hasn't been there but like in japanese clubs like there's a stage there's an amazing lighting rig there's a great sound system like even in tiny places there's always a stage even if, if you're in a, a club the size of east end there's like professional gear everything is like professional everything's great you know yeah so we get we get there they're like do a sound check and we're like sound check so we we like fuck around for like i don't know 10 minutes and we're like, i guess that sounds fine and then disclose sound checked for an hour and a half. And that's when I realized I was like, we're fucked. Yeah. Right for an hour and a half and played a 15 minute set. That was one of the most amazing fucking things I've ever experienced in my life. And we had to play after them. It's so stupid. Yeah, it was a nightmare. Yeah, it was terrible. It was just fucking god awful. Yeah, and Kawakami was like the nicest person ever, like came up afterwards i can't even remember now if it, maybe we were standing together or if it was you or me it's all just like melded memory but yeah he was like so nice and him and frank have been pen pals for a while and he came up to me and he's like your show tonight not so good <laughs> <laughs> and i was like oh 
It's like, I know, but oh. So bad. So awful. Anyways, we figured it out pretty quick, and the rest of the tour was great. And, you know. Uh, but yeah, seeing Tokyo was mind-blowing. It looked like Blade Runner. We did all kind yeah. of shit there. Chanel found a, a dead scorpion. <laughs> that was where uh, the town Age are from. I can't remember what town they live in, but it was um, it was there. Because I remember after we played with them, we were like walking around, leaving the show and loading out. And they were like in that town. There were all like the sidewalks were just or were flat, but they were demarcated by posts, you know. And so I walked up to one of the posts. And I was like, "What the fuck is that?" And there was just a scorpion just hanging on the on the post and everyone was like don't touch it don't touch it it's real oh my god like ev everyone here i am you know like the only woman all the guys are freaking out <laughs> no, but anyway um yeah just like don't do it don't touch it and i was like i'm gonna touch it it's not moving it's probably plastic it was really dark so i couldn't quite see what i was doing and just you know picked up a fucking scorpion like like you do um <laughs> Luckily, it was dead, but it was very real. Um, and then Joel wouldn't sit next to me for the rest of the tour because he said I was going to have uh, scorpion eggs hatch out of me somewhere. Um, uh, a photograph of that scorpion. That would be a good movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Chanel took a picture of the scorpion, and it ended up on the cover of Near Dark. The, there's a TV screen that's got yeah. the scorpion is in the TV screen. The scorpion is actually in a few places. Yeah, the scorpion reappears throughout the records after that. <laughs> but uh, there's a song on the record called In Trance, which got the, if you like the scorpions, you know. <laughs> that was not a deliberate connection, actually. I'll put that on the record. I was going to say, you guys thought about that a lot. <laughs> that, that connection was, I mean, the, I, I did steal that title. Yes, but yeah. I, I did not think about the fact that there was a scorpion on the record. <laughs> What's weird about that record cover, and it's just like, you know, endlessly staring at, at, at punk record covers and trying to analyze them or whatever, uh, completely unintentionally, that record looks a lot like the Mob Witch Hunt 7-inch. And oh, I, didn't yeah. notice, I didn't notice for years, but when I... When I realized it, I was kind of like, wow, that, <laughs> I totally ripped that fucking record cover off unintentionally. So <laughs> down to the TV, like on the, the witch hunt, there's the TV with the photograph from the, um, the seventh seal with the death with the wings and size. And then ours has a scorpion with his little scythe arm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, when I, I was um, drawing it, like, you know, I just sort of collect things like that to draw. Um, and one of the claws broke off. So it's actually, it's just got one claw. I don't know, fun fact. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, oh man, I don't even know with Japan. It's like every time I've been there, it's just so awesome. Everybody is so dedicated and has so much enthusiasm and energy for what they're doing. They take it very seriously. And it's, it's inspiring, honestly. I mean, aside yeah. from being able to play with honest band, awesome bands, it's also a really beautiful and interesting place. Like, I really would like to go there and not be on tour because I haven't done that, and I would love to, like, just kind of experience life there a little bit. Whenever we tour or travel, we do try and do touristy kind of things, like in Japan. Yeah, it was awesome. 
try to go to castles. Yeah, here there. <laughs> like, for me, I want to go to all the weird places where movies were filmed. So we went to Toronto. We went to like the class of 1984 high school. Oh, uh, awesome. The, um, the cathode ray church from <laughs> Videodrome. Creepy. And, like, oh. I felt yeah. creepy even being near the building. I was just yeah. like... And what's crazy is that entire block has been torn down and rebuilt except for that building. So the cathode ray mission is still there. We go down to the Bay Area, go to the, the house where they filmed Phantasm and uh, burnt offerings, whatever. Shit like that. Tourist stuff. You gotta do it. Yeah. But in Japan, we never have had the opportunity to do that because it's very expensive to be there. It's very expensive to travel, and so we don't usually have a day off at all whenever we've gone before. Went to some castles. It's true. No, people took us around, and we saw a lot of cool stuff, but, you know, we didn't have, like, a few days off to, like, meander around or, you know, that kind of thing. And it also felt very rushed because clubs there, like, you have to sound check very early in the day, like, three in the afternoon, usually. Or at least that's yeah. How. That's what I've heard that you're you're scheduled from the time you get up from breakfast till exactly. after the show. Oh God! And on the Atrocious Madness tour, we had this idea. I don't know why. To you can if you're a tourist, you can buy these cheap train passes. So we we're like, oh, we'll get these train passes, and it's cheaper than hiring a van and gas and tolls and stuff. And we had these like collapsible dollies that we were carrying all our fucking merch and gear around oh, on. Oh my God! Yeah. It was a nightmare. I'll tell you. <laughs> sounds like an absolute nightmare. Such the train rides were beautiful, but yeah, yeah, it was really hard. And my guitar at the at like no, I didn't have no. That was a little bit. You had the you had the Ice Man, but the the uh, the guy who made your guitar case had put the handle on wrong. Yes. So like it wasn't. I had a flight case, like a heavy duty flight case, and I also was carrying an Ice Man. So I mean, that thing is like larger than me. You know, and then the case shouldn't have been too, too heavy, but he weighted it wrong when he put the foam in. And it was like, I got it right before we had to go on tour. So I didn't have time for him to fix it. So when you carried it, like you couldn't carry it without it dragging in the back. It sucked. Uh, like it was so, and it wasn't it, like, it was so, it was like exactly the right size to torture me, you know, like, <laughs> like trying to carry it through a fucking park in Germany at three in the morning or whatever, you know, like for two miles, we're like, oh, the house is really close by. Okay. Yeah. I'll just, <laughs> you know, just dying, huffing and puffing. But yeah, that, that was no fun. What's Australia like? I'm asking about all these places I've never been. Oh um, yeah. Australia was great. Uh, that, that tour, we went to Japan and then Australia, New Zealand, getting into Australia was an experience so we had to we had to plan it out so we couldn't bring anything into australia that said the band name on it no merch we had to enter the uh customs areas separately but at the same time so like different customs yeah. areas. But we totally stuck out like sore thumbs i mean there was nobody nobody else there who was like filthy and wearing all black and <laughs> from, like, hungry after being in japan <laughs> 
uh, we had sent all of, like separate merch and banners and everything to Australia so we could just like cruise in. So we all got in fine. And then we're waiting and there's no Keith and we're waiting like an hour goes by and no Keith shows up. And it is, we, none of us wanted to go to like security or yeah. customs and be yeah. like, Hey, we're missing this guy. Cause like, who knows what's happened to this guy? <laughs> we won't get wrapped up into it. So we're calling, yeah. calling the person who booked the show and you're supposed to pick us up and we're telling them and they don't want to like, go to the customs guy either and um, trying to figure out figure out what's going on and eventually keith emerges just pouring sweat and they had, the dogs had sniffed cocaine on his bag oh which doesn't which do with so, us. which is yeah. funny because that was not anything any of us were even remotely interested in at all especially yeah. so it was like because yeah again We've been at a party the night before. Yeah. We've been at a yeah, party so the night before and somebody spilled on it or something. Yeah. Or was just really sweaty and got, you know, like on the bags. Who knows? But yeah, they had like the most strict um customs that I've ever experienced outside of England, but in Australia. Even worse than the UK. Yeah. That's, that's always been my experience, yeah. But like the they are doing it to try to protect like their animals and massive viruses from spreading because they're a really small population actually on an island basically but they didn't do a very good job because we all got sick and were puking our guts out for (laughs) 24 hours (laughs) the olympics had just been there and released some super flu across the entire continent we tried to go camping and go to the beach we took days off so we could do that and we were all just puking all night long (laughs) it was like we went to the beach in the morning i was just like shaking and so cold but i wanted to like you know sit there at least you know Uh, we got to the beach and there was like a kid being carried out screaming because he'd just been stung by a jellyfish like typical australia stuff yeah and we're shaking and puking. I still want <laughs> One of the things that really appealed to me about going there is that I love birds and I especially love parrots. And they just have parrots there everywhere, all different kinds, just everywhere, flocks of them, like in the streets, you know. And the other wildlife too, like I just love animals. So there was a giant, yeah. giant draw for me to be like, I could go there and see all these animals. And like we went to a sanctuary and I saw a lyrebird, which is like, the the bird that can do the most accurate mimicry of any maybe any animal but definitely of any bird and i just like i've watched so many documentaries about it and looked at it in books and drawn the picture and then i saw it in person i just felt like it was like i was starstruck you know like <laughs> like this bird just came ambling out totally regular looking little bird i don't know if you remember frank but i was like oh my god oh my god um just really excited i remember seeing the prehistoric three-eyed lizard oh yeah that was a news caught up a mountain that was sorry these aren't these aren't really crazy tour stories we're just talking about puking and animals that's most of tour yeah (laughs) i mean it was just it was a really stark contrast to japan basically like that's the only time i've been there so my experience in australia was just colored by the fact that we had just come from japan where it was winter and there was snow and we didn't eat very much at all because if you don't eat fish there's not a lot to choose from and then we went to this incredibly hot place oh yeah that was the other thing being in japan where people are really mindful of their personal space and you don't really notice them even when it's very crowded australia is just like the opposite you know just like very tall people 
behaving much more like Americans, and it's really warm, and they eat giant portions of everything, which I know <laughs> was really important, but, like, after a week of fasting or whatever, it was... Well, that was another thing about the puking thing. We had finally gotten to eat with the Indian buffet. Oh my- so much fucking Indian food, and then four hours later, fucking puking up curry and chickpeas. <laughs> he, he didn't get sick, right? It was all the cocaine. He got stopped. Yeah. <laughs> but no, he found a giant tick on his head when he woke up oh. after we've been camping. <laughs> and I was like, you're not even going to get sick from that. Uh, my impression of Australia was that everyone acted like they were living in the Road Warrior. And my impression of New Zealand was that everyone acted like they were living in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> it's, yeah. Also, New Zealand was one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. It, it doesn't even look real. It's not. Yeah, I bet. I mean, the only place it compares to is like Croatia and like, so you know what I mean? Like that whole, yeah. it's just like so scenic and insanely beautiful. It's like. Also, all the shows in Japan were awesome. And then everyone hated us in Australia. And New yeah, Zealand. that was true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like in, in Japan, it's just everybody's like, we know a lot of people already. We got, you know, and our friend, yeah, booked the tour, which is great. But I think he might have been the only person who actually wanted to see us play. <laughs> there, there were other people, obviously, who wanted to see us play. But the shows were like, people were bummed on us and like annoyed. Oh, you've got a, you've got oh, a damp man. story. Go to a band called Granny Fist in a in like the community room of an apartment complex. And oh, the guy just walked up and like was fucking with the amp while we were yeah. playing, trying to while we were playing. He turned it off, said it was we weren't doing it right. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you're you're bored by this because this has been happening wow. to us for over 20 years, but I don't know if people realize that, that like it still happens that like people will just fucking off or like just... we, we played a show in Texas with an Epsi. And while, while we were playing, the, the guy from the local opening band just walked up on stage, unplugged his amp, and said, if you're gonna play real music, you can use this. If you're just gonna make noise, you can fuck off and, and walked off with the amp. So we, we just stood there and had to wait to round up another amp. I remember, like, like if you look at any pictures from, like, really old Atrocious Madness shows, people are in the audience laughing open, openly, you know? Like, <laughs> it's like that kind of thing. And then, like, the um, amps getting taken or shut off or whatever the fuck. It's like, so whenever something positive happens or, you know, then I'm just like, oh, this is great. You know, I'm expecting the dumb shit just being like, okay, oh God, this guy's going to mess with us, you know? But like, so when things go well, it's, 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 it's that much more fun. There you go. <laughs> and fuck after that. And then you have a 30 hour fucking flight home. Oh. Uh, that's why it's possible. I'll never see Australia or New Zealand. <laughs> it's worth it. I mean, if you can go through Japan, hang out there for a couple of days, go down. Okay, here's here's a here's a, a sort of tour related story. You can edit it out if it doesn't make sense or stupid. So, a million years ago, when you had to look through the paper to find the cheapest flights, and then. Like, <laughs> On them, like immediately, there was like through a travel agent, so you'd find whatever place was offering the cheapest flights, and you fucking call them, you rush down there, you secure your flights, and then you pay for them later. So, Scott Horseman. Yeah, so we had. Uh, where were we going? Australia or? Uh, 
think Europe. I can't remember. Anyways, we're going to Japan because no, no, actually that was the New Zealand trip because we had to get that weird special. That's right. So we we find the shitty tickets. We go down to pay for them with like I don't know twenty thousand dollars in cash or something. You know? <laughs> <laughs> a lot, like literally stacks of cash. And our yeah. travel agent was like fives. And yeah, our travel agent got this kind of look on his face, like oh, okay. And uh, everything seemed cool. And then to go to Australia, we had to get this um, special form that you can only get a few days before your flight. So I go down to the travel agent to get the form, and the windows are all papered over, and the door is locked. <laughs> what the oh, fuck? Like, no idea if the tickets we bought are even good, you know? Yeah. And, like, I'm knocking on the door because I can hear people in there, like, trying to look over the paper. And the door opens, and this woman, oh, she's crying. And she's like, I'm sorry, we don't, we're, we're closed. And I was like, explain to her the situation. And she's like, was that Scott Horseman? And I was like, yeah. She's like, he embezzled 40000 you know, like, some insane amount of money. Yeah. Put business, like, put him out of business and then just disappeared. So, yeah, they were like that travel agency had been open for decades. It was like right by PSU. It was like student travel or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. We bought tickets from Scott Horseman before. It's Anyways. true. And then, yeah, but I, I can't help but wonder if that giant stack of cash wasn't just like the last <laughs> Horseman, you know? Like, <laughs> that was when he left. So what? So you didn't get your tickets? No, the tickets, the lady said the tickets were fine. And I said, okay, well, I, I just need this form. We're leaving in two days. I just need the, the customs form or what? I can't remember what it was. And you're only supposed to be able to get it from the the person or the, the company that sold you the tickets. And they couldn't issue it because they didn't exist anymore. Oh, right. So she walked me all to like several travel agents around downtown asking if they would issue me one. <laughs> and eventually... Eventually they did. That was it. It was fine in the end. Years later, Chanel found an article about this guy. Uh, he had been arrested in Hawaii. Found an article about this guy years later because I looked him up because I couldn't stop thinking about him, and he was arrested for embezzlement in Hawaii. Like there was like a mug, like a little rap sheet for this one arrest, and I was like, man, he's just still going at it. It was like five years afterwards. Like wow, Scott Horseman. I don't fault him. You can't really hide with a name like that, you know? <laughs> I'm terrible. I can't even remember my friend's names, and I remember that guy. <laughs> you remember Scott Horton? <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about touring Europe and the USA? Uh, I enjoy touring Europe. I have enjoyed touring the USA at times. I've never done a <laughs> tour of the U.S. before. Like, I've only ever gone, like, on short different places. <laughs> It, it like I mean I remember before it was like everybody would go on a four month tour across the U S and like barely make gas money and you know always be miserable in the South or, or whatever because of the heat, um, and we did that when we went to Europe with atrocious madness and that's too long to be on tour. It's just too long. <laughs> like yeah. you know, it, is, it was just too long. Well, part of it was with atrocious madness. We weren't a popular band at all. So touring the U.S. seemed like a pointless exercise, you know. Yeah. We would go down to the Bay Area and nobody nobody cared, so I didn't want to waste anyone's time by having them book shows for us that nobody wanted to see. And I mean, even in Europe, like, I remember Kelly had a hard time getting some places to book us because they saw our, like, cassette cover and they assumed that we were, like, dumb punks. They thought we were 
idiots or you know i don't know like it's yeah really you know, the, the european scene like is, you were like the exploited or something yeah exactly. yes we, you know, the Euro- european scene was incredibly political which is great yeah and we were too but so but, were we that's why yeah. it didn't make any sense. i think they just hated the way we sounded and like in germany actually we were turned off in germany yeah, the equipment turned off on us. We had a very like a, I wouldn't say cold because it was lukewarm with hatred. You know, <laughs> that the atrocious madness European tour was almost four months long. Yeah, and wow. it it was we were still booking shows like two months out while we were on tour. <laughs> So we like got lost. Like we had to drive down to Greece from Serbia um, and pick up our drummer because Scott, who wasn't who is in Limprist, he was covering on drums for the first half of the tour because Dominic had just had a kid. And so Dominic was meeting us in Greece. And so we drove down there. It was like a very harrowing experience getting through the Albanian mountains. Like we would, we would die there if I didn't happen to speak Russian. Um, And the one person that we encountered also happened to speak (laughs) Russian. Chanel speaking Russian saved us quite a bit in Eastern Europe, actually. (laughs) But yeah, the, so anyway, we like did this harrowing journey. Like Chris drove for like two and a half days straight or something insane um with no breaks and we get down there and we're like okay we're gonna get to the show we gotta pick up dominic all this stuff and it turns out that we can't find any food because it's easter in greece like orthodox greek greece (laughs) and like okay there was a there's an indian food place that was open we went to the squat and they were like oh we don't really know sorry i don't know what you're talking about we can't really help you it's the holiday so we just are like adrift in our van <laughs> like we find a we like i said we found an indian food place but then like at night we just like parked by the beach and like the only place open for food was this like like sweets shop that was selling like easter bunny chocolate easter bunnies and stuff like that <laughs> we had like a whole dinner anyway and then we had to go to fucking yeah get on the ferry and go to southern italy which is the whole other thing i have a different i have a completely different memory of that so the guy who was supposed to book the shows in Greece uh, told us, I can't book these shows because it's Orthodox Easter, which makes no sense because there's no reason that like anarchist squats and yeah. are celebrating fucking Easter. Uh, but he told me that like a couple weeks before we were supposed to go there. And, but Orthodox Easter is on a calendar. It's not like it snuck up on him, you know? Anyway, so we do get to Greece. I have a very, I have very nice memories of our time in Greece. It I actually like, really nice after when we ate all of our, um, when we ate all of our chocolate bunnies and stuff at night next to the van, you could see this, like, there was this whole um, procession of people going up the side of a mountain with candles. It was really cool. Oh, damn. Yeah, and since it was like the Easter holiday, all of the tourist attractions were free. So we went Acropolis, you know, like and anywhere we could go, we went. And yeah. the record, the, the like outdoor market in Athens is insane. And the record stalls were just out of control. Incredible. Anyway, that's it. Oh, damn. When you were in Serbia, was that before or after the war, during? It was not that long after. We were there in what, 2000? One. And then, so yeah, 2001, I think. Uh, in any case, it was not long after, and we had a lot of crazy experiences. Did you play shows there, or were you just driving through? Yeah, we played 
we played there. We played two shows. Um, we played one in Belgrade where um, it was like this crazy, it was a really cool space. It was actually really big and there, there were lots of people. I don't think they were there to see us, but there was just a lot of people at this event. Show was awesome. Show was awesome. It was yeah. really fun. I found all these really cool like books and scenes and stuff. Um, but then we found out later that a lot of people were pay, paying us with the old denarii, like the old, <laughs> like, you know, like the, <laughs> I'll get to that in a second. But the second show was amazing. Like we were booked for some reason. Like they, they had us put on the bill at this reggae fest. No, 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 wait, wait. That's not how it happened. <laughs> we were supposed to go to Russia and all of our um, applications got lo lost in the mail. So we never got our visas to go to Russia. So we had no shows. And a couple of the punks at the show in Belgrade said, well, our friends have this arts and culture festival that they put on. You can play that. And when we got there, it turned out it was a reggae festival on a lake. Atrocious madness, okay? <laughs> Final act of a reggae festival. That's literally, the stage is on a lake about 20 feet, 30 feet out, maybe longer. You have to walk a little plank to get out there. Um, we harshed everyone's mellow. Like, it was just, <laughs> just water everywhere. So it was, like, especially loud and terrible, you know? Like, it was so funny. And then there were, like, the five punks who came with us that were like, woohoo, at the shore, you know? But, like, every single other person, just, we just cleared the room, you know? Um, we got to stay in this little hostel. That was really cool. As we were going down, you know, going south, we were going to try to go to Bulgaria because I had a friend there. And he said we could possibly play a show, but it was just, like, not possible to figure out how to find him. Like, we were going through... Yeah, yeah it was a whole thing. Um, but there was a... We were on one of the long drives, and we happened to have... Um, two Serbian people with us. And we got pulled over because we were in a German van. But... Um, <laughs> they, they they were like you know they that happened actually pretty, people would be like nazis and throw rocks at the van you know? <laughs> it's just crazy um but he pulled us over because he thought that we were german and when he discovered that we were american he was like good you know like he was i could kind of understand what he was saying but like the serbian folks luckily were there because it was pretty scary chris was just like white as a sheet um and so the cop walks up to the van and says something and then walks away and the Serbian punks were with us. We're like, he just said you're going to go to jail tonight, and then you're going to go to court in the morning. Yeah. And that's when we started to panic. Yeah. And we just jumped out of the van and ran back and started arguing with the cop, which is crazy. I mean, we were like, get out of the van. What the fuck? It was like when we entered Serbia, too. Like, remember when Martin got out and was just like, here, no, no, they're against the war. Like, read the lyrics. Like, we, when we entered the country, they were like, oh, Americans? Like, what the fuck are you doing here? And definitely people came up to me, like, at the reggae festival and were like, oh, you're from the United States. How do you feel about the fact that you bombed our babies? Like, you know, it was not. Yeah, it was a <laughs> Yeah. And so, like, the, you know, the hate was real. And it was good that they went and talked to him because they were like, you know, we explained to them that like you were against the war and your lyrics are against the war. And so we ended up giving them like a CD or something. <laughs> but he told Chris, he was like, yeah, you're going, you're going to jail. And uh, Chris was like, take all my money, take everything from off of me. You know, like I don't, yeah. know. Um, but then the other thing that happened was we were driving on one of those long drives and uh, 
we were alone at this point because we were on our way down south. Um, but like we had to pull over to get gas. It was like the only place for miles and miles around. It was just like kind of open prairie land sort of environment. And we went in and like Chris was like, you know, we, we need, we explained that we wanted to get the, the tank filled up and he told us how much it cost. Chris took out that money. He put it on the counter. And then the guy who also had a cop standing next to him, by the way, behind the counter, he picked up his newspaper and just set it over the money and said, you owe me 20 bucks or whatever it was we had just paid him. And I was like, no, it's right there. And they're just doing that deadpan thing of like, you haven't paid us, you know, where it's like very threatening. Um, So we're like, okay, let's just throw down another bill and get the fuck out of here. (laughs) It was just like in vacation when he crashes the the station wagon and those hillbillies. When we crossed the border into Armenia, it was when we discovered that we didn't have real money um, because they literally laughed. Macedonia, Serbia. Does that sound right? Yes, no, it is. Anyway, wherever we were coming from, I had. Sorry, I've been saying the wrong country. Four euros. And I tried to exchange it. Well, we crossed the border. This is like a wasteland border. Like there's a little man's land. Everyone's in super fascist looking uniforms on either side of the border staring at each other. And I try to exchange the money. The money exchange guy spits on the ground and says something about like filthy Macedonia or, you know, and shuts the window. And I'm like, ah, fuck. Okay, and like we needed to exchange money to get gas. So I, I just walked back across the border. Like all the border guards are standing there staring at me, <laughs> watching like, what am I doing? And I go to the money exchange on the other side and the guy says the same thing. I'm not taking that filthy money. You know, like, we're not giving you money for this I, filthy No, it was by myself. You guys were all in the van. And, <laughs> you know, it's in broken English. So I, I walk back across the border and that at that point the border guard comes up to me and he's like what are you doing i was like i need to exchange his money and he's like all right let's go and we go to try and talk to the guy and the guy won't open the window he's just yelling we walk back across the border the other guy shuts the window like won't have anything to do with this so the border guard's like okay i can exchange the money for you but you're gonna have to pay for it and i'm like that's totally fine whatever so we go to this uh <laughs> i mean it's it's kind of like a like a strip mall kind of on the border you know it's just a bunch of shacks yeah. this is like legit like like movie kind of stuff so yeah, yeah. there we go into this room and there's uh, a woman in there like chopping up a chicken on a, with a <laughs> on like a stump with a hatchet and uh this dude comes out from behind some curtains like very stereotypical eastern european sketchy dude tracksuit <laughs> like, like huge. and they exchange some words and he's like what why do you need this money and i was uh, trying not to say we're in a band like not let on anything yeah we're needing a gas i just need to exchange this money and he's like okay but you're gonna have to pay me and i was like that's totally fine he's like i go back and forth across the border a lot it's like i don't want to know <laughs> <laughs> so uh, he he exchanged the money and we paid him for it, and I was, and we walk outside, and the border guards like, "Get out of here, just go." There. <laughs> so. Yeah, it was like they were like, "All right, we'll look the other way." I don't know why they decided to be so nice to us, you know, like considering all the hate we'd gotten so recently. Before. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it might have also been like 
that kind of neighbor neighborly rivalry kind of thing where they're just kind of trying to piss each other off i don't know it was oh we had to drive through that trough of of disinfectant for mad cow cow. I don't know. On a four months of that, yeah. On a four month tour, there's lots of stupid shit that happens. But anyway, that's a church madness. Yeah. <laughs> By the time we've been in Toten was doing European tour, and it's there's it all pretty easy. I mean, it's such a different experience. It's totally just a completely different world in a way. Oh yeah, I guess things are a bit different because we even went through Slovenia. Yeah. And it wasn't like it definitely wasn't what it was like in the nineties. I mean, again, and Poland and yeah, hardest place like, to get into was England. Yeah, what was England? The hardest place to get into. Oh yeah. Well, tell me about your friendship with Limperist. How did that start? Um. Well, like like I mentioned, we ended up having Scott play with us, play drums with Atrocious Madness on the first half of our European tour in two thousand one. Um. But we had met before that because Limperist actually stayed. They came to town and played a show, and they stayed with Frank. And Scott actually wasn't in the band at that time, but he was there because they were already good friends, and we all just really hit it off. So we all love Scott and everything. We all love Scott. We love Martine. The first time I met Scott was at a Halloween show, and he had just moved to Portland. I didn't know him yet. And somebody was being obnoxious, and I turned around and looked, and there was this guy with facial tattoos and, like, you know, Sharpie. A, a very classic train hopping crusty of the early 2000s. <laughs> with like, and he very, had like a fucking cheese grater hanging. Somebody, I didn't realize who I thought I was just like, oh, fuck. You know, at the, at the time it was very stereotypical of those kind of people who cause problems at whatever. Anyways, yeah. I didn't realize that it was Scott in a Halloween costume. It was with, like so sharpied on tattoos <laughs> and yeah, a cheese grater hanging off his pants and stuff. That was my first meeting with him. And then the next was when Limper stayed at my house and there's this other guy there eating all my food. And I'm like, who the fuck is this other person? Like, I, it didn't even seem like he knew Limperist for a while. It just <laughs> showed up at the house. He did. He had, he had been in Limperist before, and, but wasn't at the time. Mm-hmm. Anyways. And then he played drums for a church Maps. And then, yeah, we just we just love each other. I, I booked that Limpress show. That was their, their from their first tour. Uh, and then we've just been friends after that. I actually, I saw Los Crudos on their first tour. They played in Santa Barbara. And that was kind of like a, like a fucking relief for me because they were a punk band. Yeah. And they were like a raging, hardcore, political punk band, which, oh, fuck yes. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to close with Static. Thank you guys for coming. Uh, anything you want to say about Static? Scott has a lot of electronics projects he does, and so we had him put uh, layers and layers of synth on the Static 12-inch. So it's 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 us. It's basically us with, with Scott Moore doing synth stuff. It's great, and we we just end up playing with Limprist a lot. They're great. <laughs> Static is super intense, and it's, like, almost two different songs. Can you tell me what it's about? Yeah, um, I actually wrote the lyrics and, um, you know, created sort of the concept of 
the record based on some experiences that I had with psychosis a few years ago. And, you know, like I was saying earlier, part of the way that I process things is by making things, you know, about them in a way. And it's not, yeah. this record is definitely not autobiographical in any way, because I think that these kinds of experiences can actually translate really well to most people as, you know, because we're all feeling beings on the planet and like going through difficult times. And I think that, you know, the, the type of paranoia and the intensity that you experience when you are dealing with psychosis is just, I mean, it's only an exact, an exacerbation of what's already there. You know, it's like you, we already have these kinds of fears or worries, but most of us can kind of set them aside. Whereas like, if you have paranoia, it's impossible to set aside, you know, and it's impossible yeah. to get away from. And so it's totally overwhelming. And there are so many extremes that are coming together. And that was really what I wanted the whole record to feel like, um, even just beyond the lyrics, which to me, like, yeah, like even just beyond the lyrics, um, I really wanted the sound um, to reflect that too. And like Frank was just saying with Scott, like he came on and did, all this amazing work on it and it was I just love that record so much but part of the thing that he and I talked about extensively was like what had happened why I wrote what I did um like you know the experiences that I had had so that I could explain to him you know what I what I thought would be an incredible thing to hear and he just made something more, even more amazing than I could have imagined um but part of that part of the reason that it's called static um, part of the reason that, you know, there's all this, these elements of chaos and everything in there. So the, the reason that I really fixated on that for myself was that by the time, you know, there's a certain point, um, what I experienced was mania. And there's a certain point in mania where you start, you start to feel great and then you feel really good and then you feel too good. And then it's terrifying. Um, that was how it worked for me. And part of what had started to happen was that I had, you know, auditory hallucinations. I had voices in my head and I could not turn the volume down, you know? So it was just like maddening. So I'd be turning on the TV and turning on the stereo and putting music on my computer and just like having things going around me at all times as a way to just kind of even it out. And I mean, it, it didn't work obviously, but it was very <laughs> soothing. And I also think in retrospect, it's kind of funny because I, um, like I was saying earlier, for some reason, like with Disorder and, you know, all those kinds of bands that were supposed to be like so sort of chaotic and noisy sounding, like it just always really resonated with me. Like just that kind of element of like, you know, static and flux and all these kinds of things happening. Um, so maybe for me, it was just a self-soothing kind of like <laughs> to me way of dealing with it. But I don't think so. so. I don't know if you saw that documentary about Rocky Erickson. But there's there's a point where they go to his house and, you know, he's there and he hasn't been getting a lot of medical care. Like, I think at that point in the documentary, but they go into his house and he deals with mental health issues that are similar to what I deal with. And they open the door and he's got like four radios in each room and in every room there's a TV that's on. All of them are on. Yeah. It's just like this chaotic swirling sound. And at first I was like, wow, that's really scary. Like. I wonder why he was doing that. And now I'm like, I understand <laughs> because I did the same thing. But yeah, the, the super intense juxtaposition to between the two, the tempos of both parts of the song 
and then like the way they're melded together with the the stuff that Scott did I just feel like it did such a good job of just like encapsulating I think one of the my favorite reviews I've ever read of Lumen and Toten was like a bad translation of a Japanese review where they said that we sounded like cicadas in a bamboo cage being shaken when that starts happening to you how do you get out of it what do you do to stop it the full-blown mania is a form of psychosis and luckily that's not something that I have to deal with on a regular basis it's very difficult for me to imagine what you can do for a person who's in that acute state of psychosis besides giving them medication to allow their brain to rest and heal and come out of the delusion but luckily that that has not happened to me but I you know I needed I needed help and I needed to be hospitalized you know in order to be able to be safe and not be a danger to myself basically um and at that point like I said for me it had just become totally unbearable I mean it's a terrible state to be in your brain doesn't want to be doing that and it's essentially a brain injury that takes a long time to heal from um and the other element of that is that you know the the bipolar from bipolar disorder is the you know the opposition it sounds terrifying and i think it's a lot more common especially with punks than i don't know than people think yeah i think that's true i think it's changed a bit over the years but like especially you know when i was getting into punk or you know whatever generation either of us any of us are from like part of that was like you needed a family you know like you needed yeah. a place to be where you could be and be safe and i think that that's something that a lot of punks have in common still even though i'm sure like things have changed today you were saying you were asking me if you know if i had to like what i did to get out of that particular experience luckily i don't have to deal with that extreme situation as often as some people have to but i do go to therapy and i do take medication in order to stay alive you know is that too dramatic <laughs> no it's not um but i guess it's just important to say because i think that you know, I myself am afraid of stigma on a certain level, even though I really don't want to care about it. It still affects me. And I think, you know, if people talk about these things more, it doesn't feel as like scary and isolating when you when or if you find out that you have a problem like this, because even if you don't have an illness, you know, everyone experiences depression at some point. Everyone experiences, you know, we all have the same range of emotions. It's just that when you have an illness, it's defined by duration and intensity so it's like you know if that makes sense yeah. but i think everyone should be as aware of their mental health as they are of their physical health hide is too strong a word but was there a reason that you didn't talk about that for a long time yeah i mean i also am just a very private person for the most part and so i think that it's a difficult struggle to come to terms with for the person who's experiencing it, it's difficult for the people in their lives. And it's even more difficult to think about how you can talk about something like that lightly. The other thing is that um, it's, it's just really hard not to expect that people are gonna see you differently or not take you as seriously or something like that. How'd you get over that fear? What made you decide to talk about it? I think just what I was saying earlier, kind of realizing that you know, I saw things like this. These are things I've been dealing with my whole life, these mental health issues. And, you know, like someone like Nick Blanco, 
Like when I discovered Rupert yeah. Knight, it was just like, you know, of course the first thing everyone says about him is that he's crazy. Um, and all this kind of stuff. But what I saw was just like someone with a very unique point of view and a really unique experience making stuff that no one else had ever or will ever make again, you know, just like something that is just really beautiful that way. And I, on some level, you know, I hadn't formally understood what was going on with me, but on some level I was like, maybe I can, you know, like maybe I can make things, maybe I can do this. And there was something that, that, helped me to feel like I had an entry point in a way that I didn't before because I could tell something was wrong with me. Um, so my point is just that I think it's important to just be open about these things to a certain extent because it can help other people. I mean, that kind of stuff has really helped me and I don't think yeah. I'm like doing a good deed or something right now, but just like allowing myself to just talk about something like this casually is, is important even if it's just, even if it's not helpful to anyone, but it would be great like, if there was someone out there who was like, I thought I was the only person, you know, just to have that kind of sense of recognition, because then that helps kind of combat the feeling that you need to bow to the stigma. Yeah, well, anything that helps just take a little, take away a little bit of the stigma makes it a little bit less scary for, yeah. you know, a punk that's scared to admit what's happening. Yes, it's so much worse in isolation. It really is. It's well, like- You even just recognize what's happening. Yeah. Yes. And that's, that's what I was saying with like people recognizing that their mental health and their physical health are, are equally important. You know, like I yeah. don't think anyone, everyone kind of thinks that their mental health is an afterthought or that it's not real medicine or, you know, whatever. Um, and so I think also when, when I've heard stories like this or I've taken in, you know, media of some kind or like seen a performance or something where someone talked about this and it really spoke to me it also just makes you feel less alone. Like, even if you're not like, I'm going to run out and tell everyone my feelings. Like, you don't have to do that. If you're not ready or comfortable, you shouldn't. But it also means that you can feel a little more free. I don't know if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. Um, and being because it comes out in such fucked up ways, and especially in punk, it comes out in violence. It comes out with self-medicating, with everything from cocaine to heroin to alcohol abuse. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's why we're kind of touching upon like punks in particular. Give therapy a try, you know. <laughs> it doesn't mean you don't necessarily have an illness. You don't have to be like me, um, but you know, go in, talk about your feelings with somebody, and figure out if you're not happy. Give yourself the tools to find a path you'd rather be on. So the other thing I wanted to say about static was just that the um, I'd always wanted to do an etched record, you know, to be able to do that was really exciting and for this like you know I, I made this two-headed praying mantis you know on a field of sort of psychedelic lines you know it was just like you know the two heads the two different experiences or the two different ends of the spectrum and then this like chaotic sense of like a type of static through these these line paintings that I did like in a very um specific way um and included with that, there were also these little postcards of little line paintings that I had done at the time. But it was just re-released last year by Iron Lung, and he gave me the opportunity to do different paintings. And I got really excited because the first ones that I made were just like at a very specific point in time to me. They're like very, whenever I make something, it's like, it reminds me of the time it was in, you know, but I got excited to be able to kind of update it. The line paintings have changed, you know, like, 
what's especially cool about it is that I, so I made these really small paintings, like, and then blew it up huge for these posters. So you could see all the detail. And then we actually are having puzzles made of the, one of the poster images. And I'm very excited about it. Um, not just because I love jigsaw puzzles and it's a really nicely made one, but also because it's, it's, it's a really difficult puzzle. Like I just, all of the sort of metaphors around it are so good. You know, it's like the puzzle is almost impossible to solve. And then the lyrics are in like a single line that goes around the box so that you actually can't tell where they begin or end. You know, it's just like endless disorientation. <laughs> 